You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here on the Westwood One Podcast Network, powered by Conservative Review. And indeed, it is late Wednesday, May 9th, into a very busy week. Lots of good news, lots of bad news. I know last time I was very much uh, like a Jeremiah, so hopefully today we'll have a little bit of Ezekiel and Isaiah mixed in, and some good news, some bad news from the elections as well. Um, Obviously, Trump getting out of the Iran deal, that is probably one of the finest days of his presidency. Um, More broadly, I want to talk today about a safety and security agenda related to national security, terrorism, immigration, drugs, and domestic crime. That's your safety. That if Republicans had this agenda, I think we'd actually win. You know, every time we have these Tuesday night primary elections and you see more Democrat enthusiasm in most places, you certainly saw that last night in North Carolina, with uh, even some Republican districts having much higher Democrat turnout. You know, we keep saying, and I said this a couple weeks ago when we had Jim Butler on, our buddy from the Ohio legislature, to talk about healthcare, a health care, a winning health care agenda that would help Republicans win the election if they actually care to fight the insurance cartel and stand for free market innovation in health care. They had that narrative. And I think that's true. That's one of the top issues. But I think along with that, one of the things that Republicans that have really done Republicans well for the entirety of the modern Democrat Party that's become radical since McGovern, this dates back to Nixon, to Reagan, to the Gingrich era, is being tough on crime, tough on borders, tough on drugs tough on national security, but the threats that really affect us, not the Afghanistan, Yemeni, Syrian dumpster fires. And today I want to go through some of this as much as we have time for the Hezbollah in Latin America with the drug cartels, the latest on the immigration stuff, and this criminal justice deformed nonsense that's taking over. You know, and hopefully we'll come out with some ideas. So last night, I'm not going to go through all of the election results. I'll post in show notes my article, Top Six Observations. We went round robin on our Monday show to discuss, you know, what we thought was important about this election. And, you know, the top good news is that Mark Harris, the former Baptist pastor in North Carolina's ninth district, kind of the south central part of the state, he knocked off Rob Pittenger. Big Rhino voted for the omnibus bill. Um, that is the first time an incumbent has been knocked off from the right since I believe since Dave Bratt defeated Eric Kanner. That's how rare it is. You know that was two election cycles ago. Certainly, this was the first time this election cycles. So that's great news. 
Um, but, you know, keep in mind, we're, he, he is going to have to have good staff. He's a good social conservative. He was supported by the club for growth. Um, but, you know, he hopefully we'll get him on the show and I'm going to try to reach out to him personally and, you know, say, hey, you know, here I am. Anytime you want to talk and work work out the issues, you know where to find me. But I'm just telling you, nothing's a guarantee. But let's say that's good. So that's one guy. I got news for you, folks. <clears throat> 16 out of the 17 other Republican House members who stood for re-election and voted for the omnibus bill got re-elected, and quite handily, too. And not only that, we lost every single open seat. So you say, all right, it's hard to win against incumbent, but maybe we'll get the open seats. No, we're going backwards. We're simply not mobilized, and we don't have a narrative. And obviously, the biggest thing is money. You know, Mark Harris had a very large, you know, Baptist pastor network for years. He ran last time, came close. So he raised over $500,000. Pittenger had about $1.2 million, but, you know, that was enough to get him across the finish line to, to get his message out. The problem is our people could never find money. A lot of them never even had any opposition. But basically, we lost everything in Indiana. On the House side, you know, this was, um, you had Mike, you had Mike Pence's brother, who's a complete establishment hack. He won Messer's seat. Another establishment guy won Rakita's seat. You go over to Ohio. Ohio is just, we were slaughtered. We had the worst guy for governor, worst guy for senator, um, the two open seats where Jim Jordan butted heads with McCarthy and the McCarthy guys won in West Virginia, the open seat, an establishment person won over and over again. You know, the only other good news, you know, we might say is that Mike Braun won in Indiana and Patrick Morrissey won. That could have been worse, but I'll just warn you. There's nothing about these guys that scream at Ted Cruz or Rand Paul or whatever. Um, we would have to get to them and the establishment's going to get to them immediately because they're the nominee and they want to, they want those seats. So how good they're going to turn out, I don't know. So that's what happened last night. And I was thinking, we need a cogent message. So I, I was originally going to start with the Iran deal and Hezbollah, but to, to ensure that we have time to get to this, I want to start with jailbreak. You know, one of the things conservatives are losing, conservatives are losing suburban voters in droves. And you cannot win a national election without suburban voters. Now, I'm as you know, I live outside of Baltimore, and I could tell you nobody in the suburbs, nobody, nobody, Republican or Democrat, and I live in an area that's broadly, you know, more the broader area is certainly more Democrat, Nobody believes that we're too tough on crime. That there's not enough leniency in our criminal justice system. I don't know anyone who believes that. But nonetheless, there's been a growing movement in all 50 states and at a federal level to basically dismantle the entire Reagan-era tough-on-crime regime. 
And I'm pretty much the last man standing. Every so-called conservative think tank. You want want to talk about a a drug crisis, an opioid crisis. The the drug crisis on the right is the Coke addiction. And I say that with a K, the Coke brothers. Funding all this stuff. All of our guys, American Conservative Union. You know, a, a good patriot, Bill Otis, was nominated for the U, to, to for a position at the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and you know you have all these so-called conservative organizations joining with Soros to fight him because he's not supportive of jailbreak. So, you know, I was on Steve Dace's so Steve Dace's show today, and we were talking about how he was watching old college uh, football games from the mid '80s. And it was during an election year, and he was watching the Republican commercials. Every one of them was a Willie Horton-style ad. That's what they ran on. And that's why in the 90s, even most Democrats had to be tough on it. And now, even the Freedom Caucus members, are you know, a lot of them are just going along with jailbreak. Mike Lee, everyone, jailbreak, jailbreak. At a time when we have a drug crisis, at a time, especially when you're doing this at a federal level, you have a lot of criminal aliens that aren't even Americans that should be thrown out that are going to be roped into this. Trump's good on this, but he has his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, running around pushing this. So rather than having an agenda, and I can tell you, you want to to win an election with suburban voters, you say, we are going to end this week on crime nonsense. We're going to go after the criminals with full vigor. It never fails as a political issue. Obviously, it's the right thing to do, but you know they only care about politics, so I'm telling you it's a good political issue. But instead, why do we have conservatives? I always joke around that conservative movement exists to score points for the other side, to do stuff that they would get crushed for doing alone, but now you have our guys taking the blame for it. So they're pushing this jailbreak legislation. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. Not going to hear it. Now, this is not um th- th- this is not a th- this is not the Lee Durbin straight up get rid of all of the sorts of mandatory minimums. That bill was marked up in the Senate Judiciary Committee on the same day as the Parkland shooting. They had a bill that retroactively releases a number of gun felons in federal prison. And of course, you know, they have the nerve to talk about gun control. And by the way, now it was confirmed that the Parkland shooter was in this promise program. These leniency programs are exactly what even conservatives, much less liberals, are pushing, and they don't learn the lesson. So they're not pushing that bill. They're pushing a bill that they're calling just prison reform, just reintegrating them back into society at the end of their you know, prison term. You know, don't we want them to be integrated? And, you know, the messaging is great. And that's why it's catching on. And so even people like Mark Meadows, who's against jailbreak, is like, all right, well, you know, there's a lot of pressure to do this and everyone wants to do prison reform. And this is a way of doing it, but it's not a jailbreak bill. I got news for you. What they're pushing is a jailbreak bill. The fundamental problem with this bill, and it, it was just marked up a couple hours ago in the House Judiciary Committee. Lots of good members on that committee, and they, they're completely green. Uh, right before the show, I was texting with someone and said, do you know what's going on? It's really bad. 
really, really, really bad. They don't even know what's in the bill. We have our best guys serving as useful idiots to these people. And in fact, literally as I'm talking to you, before I forget, I'm texting with one member. I just got to get this out. Telling him to check his email. Because I don't want to forget during the duration of the show. This just came out. The fundamental problem with this bill is that it's centered around an early release program dressed up as a pre-release custody. They're trying to say it's not jailbreak, but this is exactly what I'm experiencing in Maryland, and we're seeing the crime from it. In the most liberal blue state legislatures, this is what conservatives in the Judiciary Committee signed off on. Inmates get to spend up to one-third of their sentence in home confinement. And home confinement is so poorly defined that an inmate can do almost anything outside their home and still comply. And they're doing this very much carte blanche and not targeted. The early release doesn't apply to everyone. It does have some, and I'm still reading through the bill, but it it, it does absolutely apply to all drug traffickers, including heroin and fentanyl, not just marijuana. So you know, once a fentanyl trafficker, trafficker is in home confinement, and a lot of these guys are foreign nationals, the Bureau of Prisons, BOP, has no way of ensuring that they're not trafficking more drugs. And they're already stretched thin. Ready stretched thin. Now, before I go on, let me just say, this entire thing is built on a lie. The prison population per capita is at its lowest level since 1996. So, meaning, whether you agree or disagree with the incarceration era, that ship has sailed, much to the success, in their mind, of the jailbreak movement. So the notion that we need more, now is the worst time, especially when the trend is that prison population is plummeting, and incidentally, in a lot of metro areas, crime is now going up after going down for 23 years. But anyway... The bill requires, imagine this just irresponsible, carte blanche type of just indiscriminate mandate on BOP. It requires all federal prisoners to be housed within four, within 500 miles of their home. Right, kind of this like, and there's no exceptions to this provision. So the information that I have from BOP is that 22,000 gang members will need to be moved. Imagine just such an operation. It's all, by the way, this all applies retroactively, not just prospectively to new inmates. So because of some stupid, let's house them within 500 miles of their home. Oh, so now we have to have a major operation, security problem, to move, among others, 22,000 gang members. And keep in mind, there's no, at least what I'm told, keep in mind you don't have supermax facilities everywhere in the country. So if you have no exceptions to a mandate, and I believe this applies, they have specific examples like the Boston Bomber and El Chapo, they will know, if we were to follow this bill and if it were to pass, based on where they're considered domiciled, there is no supermax facility within 500 miles. They would get to be moved, the Boston Bomber and El Chapo. 
There's also just a whole logistical problem with women's with with women because there aren't that many women's prisons. So, you know, it's just it's just a stupid mandate. I mean, irrespective of where you are, even if you're sympathetic to jailbreak, it's just it's just a dumb provision. Then it has, again, those of you who are like me, you come from a blue state, I guess now even red states, you'll be familiar with all what the states are doing, what they're doing on a federal level, this retroactive good time served credits. So it increases good time credits from 47 days per year to 54 days per year. And that alone would provide instant relief, release for 4,000 inmates, because again, that's retroactive. The bill provides time credits of up to 15 days for every 30 days of participation in this, you know, good credits program. Now, it does exclude, I believe, murderers and rapists. But again, notice drugs they won't talk about. At the same time that the committees are having a marathon markup of these stupid bills to spend billions of dollars on stupid treatment programs, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it, but we won't deal with the core problem. And in fact, we go more lenient on them. Heroin and fentanyl traffickers will be eligible for time credits. And then obviously you have um, the home confinement thing, which is ridiculous. It creates a new category of pre-release custody, including home confinement and um, the prisoners in this pre-release custody home confinement are free to leave their homes for a number of activities. Imagine that. Imagine that. Also, the bill changes a compassionate release program for eligible elderly offenders to start at 60 years old instead of 65. And it allows release at two-thirds of the sentence instead of 75% completed. So there's this compassionate release program that's been around for a while. Basically, they're extending how deep it could go into their sentence, how early on, and then the age that they started. Again, a lot of very hardened criminals will get um, early release. The bill further requires the Attorney General, in this case, Bill Sessions, uh, Jeff Sessions, to create an individualized assessment of all 180,000 federal prisoners to make a determination of whether the prisoner is ready for pre-release. It only gives them six months to audit the entire federal prison population, which is logistically impossible, even if he would divert all DOJ resources to that. Um, I mean, you're talking about Everyone serving in federal prison. These are some of the worst human beings alive in the world. You know, it's not just, oh, uh, marijuana people, you know, marijuana traffickers, which, by the way, there aren't even too many of them. Most of them are, you know, at least cocaine, um, but, you know, mainly heroin. No, it includes rapists, murderers, terrorists, you name it. Illegal aliens, evidently. It's all 180,000. And you can only imagine the lawsuits that this would generate. Um, No flexibility for prisons to deal with disrupted prisoners because this mandates that all prisoners participating in this recidivism program shall receive phone privileges of up to 30 minutes per day and additional visitation time. Again, no discretion for dangerous criminals. 
it, it, this whole thing is built on such a naive thing, yet almost every Republican voted for it in committee. Just astounding. This is your Republican Party, folks. This is your Republican Party. Imagine if we had a party and candidates running against this. But we don't. Anyway, let's move on. So, safety and security. National security. Trump's finest moment, standing up there, indicting the Iran regime. You know, Republicans always make promises, and either they ignore them or find ways to beat around the edges. He completely got out of the Iran deal. That's great. Now, I would just note that a lot of the sanctions were will not snap back automatically because Corker Cardin, the bill that I was the first person at the time to name it Corker Cardin, by the way, and to fight against it, even a lot of my allies thought it was at least the best we can get. And one of the things I explained to them, no, it's worse because you're codifying the suspension of sanctions into law. <clears throat> so <clears throat> it will actually take a new law. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is still uh, still weak. It will take a new law to reinstate a lot of those sanctions. But nonetheless, here's the key to Iran. What comes next? Everyone's going to focus on, oh, are they going to now start making nuclear weapons? Well, they've already been trying as hard as they can. And the more money you give them, the more ability they have to do it. That was the whole point. You cut off the funding. But the key thing is to counter them by reorienting our entire threat assessment and our foreign policy. Now, for those of you who are with us for an hour-long discussion with Jordan Schachtel about the true threats on our Foreign Policy Friday, true threats start with Latin America and Mexico and the drug cartels and the border and the nexus with Hezbollah and Iran, which as I read about it and read congressional testimony and read and speak to experts in the field, I am shocked. It's worse than I even thought it was. This is the other Iran deal that we need to get rid of. The alliances that Obama formed around the world, but one of them, and it didn't start with him, but he certainly exacerbated it, is completely ignoring Iran's activity in our own backyard. That's the real Iran deal. And what that means is reorienting our military, our diplomacy, our tools of statecraft, our intelligence assets towards what actually affects us in Latin America. Not saying you pull out of everything in the Middle East, but you don't get involved in their dumpster fires. You don't get involved with the Houthis and Al-Qaeda. You don't get involved in Syria and Afghanistan and Somalia and Mali and Maritawana. It's to focus on where Iran is tightening the noose around our neck in our own homeland. And it all gets back to immigration and borders. Now, the Sunni problems is mainly through our front door, the elective immigration we have through our visa programs. But as far as Hezbollah and Iran, that's that's a border problem. You know, obviously, there was more news this week every day in the Laredo sector around there up until Al... You know, El, El Paso area, they're catching more cocaine, but also more Middle Eastern immigrants. They're called SIAs, Special Immigrant Aliens, that they're special interest, SIAs. And basically where 
it's they're not just coming by accident. They fly to Lebanon because Lebanon and Venezuela are essentially the same country, which we'll have hopefully in the current days. Um, a new friend of mine, one of the foremost experts in the world on this issue, um, Joseph Humeyer from the Center for Secure Free Society, to talk about this. But I had a really long conversation with him this week about this. Um, we have a serious problem on our hands with Venezuela. So basically, Iran and Hezbollah, you know, together, they have set up shop over the last four decades in Latin America and over the last decade or so in Mexico through this complex amalgamation of demographics. And I was shocked. I didn't realize how much of a diaspora they had even before the 1980s, much less afterwards in these countries. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, areas that are completely controlled by Hezbollah, together with these radical leftist Marxist type of governments and the radicalization of the people against America. And it all fits together that this entire kind of Cold War era Soviet Marxism that took hold in Latin America has now transmogrified into this almost pan-Arab Islamist mentality. And that is, that's the real threat. And it all starts with Venezuela. So basically you have, you know, you have countries where they have major populations, but the, the governments are cooperating with us, although we should be doing a better job, such as Argentina after the fall of the Kirchner administration. Tremendous. That's the biggest Lebanese Syrian population. <clears throat> You got a little bit in Brazil. You got Uruguay is at a government level. You got Ecuador, Bolivia, very big problems. But Venezuela is is literally on the cusp of becoming an Islamic state. It's basically an Iranian client state. Um, between the because there they have both the population and the state level. So there are, and and this is truly shocking. Truly, truly shocking. Um, <clears throat> there are over 350,000 Syrian or Lebanese expatriates that hold high offices and positions of power in Venezuela. Obviously, the president, Nicolas Maduro, is another Chavez. Um, but again, Chavez was really a product, not of the Soviet-style stuff, but of Iran. And the vice president, Tariq el is <clears throat> he is directly an Islamist. <clears throat> The vice president of Venezuela, he's a Druze, a Lebanese or Syrian Druze, I believe. And we're going to talk about this with um, with my buddy. <clears throat> but basically, Syria, basically, Venezuela has become America's Syria. What do I mean by that? It, it would be bad enough that you have an essentially an Islamic state in our hemisphere. But what if you had an Islamic state that collapses? Now. It, Iran will pick up the pieces domestically, but 2 million migrants. There's already about 800,000 migrants. For those of you who are following the collapse of Venezuela's economy, like literally, not just the way it was before, the entire collapse, it's becoming a complete failed state. Not like it used to be, like 
uh, on the level of Somalia um, and, and Syria <clears throat> in 2013. You look at what happened to Europe. That's coming our way. So it's bad enough that we have the Central American Triangle, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. They're coming and our border is wide open and we have a surge. But you are going to have a surge of hundreds of thousands of people from Venezuela. Now, not only is that terrible, as terrible as the other surges are in all the fiscal, security, cultural, economic costs. But that's where you have Islam and Hezbollah and Iran mixed in directly. It's already overwhelming Colombia, an ally. You know, rather than propping up our Syrian allies, our allies in Somalia, our allies in Yemen, our allies in Baghdad, our allies in Afghanistan, the number one country we should be propping up now is Colombia. The government's with us, but the, the institutions are terribly weak and corrupt, and they're going to fall to this. And this is your drug crisis. It all flows in the same thing. Coming up with the drug cartels, Hezbollah's bringing in all sorts of operatives, or even those that aren't direct operatives, but just dangerous Islamists that are coming from the Middle East, as well as helping them with the drug trade and poisoning our people. And yet there's no narrative. There's no focus. You know, as we speak, the House Armed Services Committee, led by pro-Iran deal leader Mac Thornberry, they have their annual NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, markup where they sit in a room for 24 hours and have a marathon markup. And I wrote an article on this yesterday we'll link to in show notes. They talk about giving $6 billion more in funding to the Afghani military, giving more to Baghdad, giving more towards Syria rebels. $250 million for Jordan's border security. But not a damn word about Hezbollah, Venezuela, Latin America, the border and drug crisis. That is the the top threat. And, And I've said this before. We have an authorization bill and then we have an appropriation bill. The authorization bill is not supposed to be about dollar figures. That's all they're talking about. How much money you want to spend on our military and other people's stupid militaries. But we don't actually authorize, meaning the NDAA is supposed to be used as a threat assessment. Well, before we decide how much money we want to spend on the military and which allies, who's our enemy, who is our ally? Who are our enemies? What we need to be doing in Latin America is using all that money we're using in the Middle East and all the military assets, not all, but some, if you just divert a little bit, and some of the intel, and you put it into Latin America. And you buttress our allies in Peru, Argentina, Chile, Panama, and Colombia. You isolate the hell out of our enemies in Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, and Uruguay. And you use the carrot and stick approach with foreign aid. I'm not against foreign aid. I'm against the way we use it for free and we get nothing for it or we just give it to enemies. Use it for tenuous allies that could be on our side. And then the countries in the middle will start coming forward and helping us. But right now, we're the weakest player. Iran, Russia, and China is obviously already involved in Latin America. We're nowhere to be seen. No narrative. 
Imagine if we had a narrative on the campaign trail where every Republican running for Congress would say, rather than owning other people's conflicts and sending our soldiers to die for them, we're going to focus on our border and homeland. And that starts with the drug cartels, with Latin America, with Hezbollah and Iran directly using the drug cartels and the uh, transnational crime organizations to kill our people. But what's funny is we address the drug crisis in the form of, oh, the opioid crisis and make it a healthcare issue, but we won't address it in terms of a national security threat. No narrative, no narrative whatsoever. So this is all on the Hezbollah front. And this is what Trump needs to do. Now's the time to strike because I'll tell you, if I put myself in Iran's shoes, this is where they're going to hurt us. If I'm Iran, I'm going I'm to I'm juice up my operations right in our backyard. And the truth be told, really in our country. I mean, we've, we've been seeing this phenomenon of OTMs other than Mexicans crossing into our border for 15 years. And you have the Islamization of, of the entire, you know, good, good chunks of South America, most prominent in um, Venezuela and uh, Colombia, but obviously in, you know, the corners of Argentina that border Paraguay. And that's another thing. Paraguay is a classic example. Um, as we'll discuss in greater detail in the future, Paraguay is a country where the, on a governmental level, they're cooperating. They're good. They're cooperating even with Israel. Israel has good relationships with them, um, but the institutions are very weak, and they actually do have a big diaspora of Lebanese there, of Arabs, and Hezbollah just operates freely there. We need to train them. No, we have to train the Syrian opposition. We have a Syria in our own backyard. It's time for a Monroe Doctrine. It's time we stop owning other people's priorities in the Middle East and take charge of our own priorities in the Western Hemisphere. Not just from a border migration, illegal immigration, and drug problem, but and that is certainly enough of a reason to do so, but from a terrorism problem, from an Iran-Hezbollah problem. You think of it as a Middle East thing. Well, Middle East doesn't affect us. Again, Iran proper will eventually, if they do get nuclear weapons, but this is also a way of choking that off. They get tremendous amount of revenue from the drug trade and the and, and, and the whole crime, circuitous crime money laundering racket that is operated out of, out of South America. But it's creeping into Mexico. All the elements, working with the drug cartels, you know, because the state government doesn't mean anything. It's the drug cartels that matter. And then it, again, uh, there is a growing diaspora that's newer than the than Venezuela, but it's 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 growing. Con- Muslim converts among the indigenous population. I mean, this is growing. This is a very big problem. But we have no narrative on a Monroe Doctrine. That's what we need. That would resonate with people. You know, part of the thing is the country is fatigued because they're not seeing us getting any results from what we're doing overseas. If we explain this to people that this is the nexus of the border, of immigration, of sanctuary cities, of MS-13, of Hezbollah, of Iran, terrorism, and the drug crisis, all in one, and it's so redressable if we actually put our intel, military, and diplomatic assets into this, I think we'd have a completely different narrative 
And the left wouldn't know what to do with this. Just like they wouldn't know what to do if we actually became tough on crime again, rather than helping the left own one of their prize issues. And ultimately, early release, as you know, the end goal is voting. Except they don't have to own it because we obfuscate the issue and don't hit them on it. We push it for them. It's just so sad that President Trump is actually really good on these issues we're talking talking about. If you want to find some degree of consistency with him when it comes to safety and a security agenda, he's really been very good on this. But, you know, under his own eyes, his own son-in-law he brought in is promoting the jailbreak agenda. I thought, you know, with Trump as president, I thought one thing is sure we'd be done with that. No, we're not. And then, you know, I think if you had... Gosh, I really would hope his chief of staff, General Kelly, who is the head of Southcom, um, he oversaw the military operations that dealt with South America, that he would imbue in the present the importance of reprioritizing our focus on Hezbollah and Iran in, in Latin America. That That's the agenda we need. That is the agenda we need. Anyway, I'm about out of air here. Hopefully, we'll be able to put out another episode this week. Maybe we'll have a Foreign Policy Friday. I'm not sure yet. Uh, but watch watch for next week. If you like your omnibus bill, how about a trillion-dollar farm bill? Lovely. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about that more next week as well as many other issues. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 